Uh, next week, uh, we will start Advent. And so really, uh, tonight is uh, preparing us for Advent. And Advent prepares us for Christmas. So we're kind of preparing to prepare for Christmas uh, tonight. Uh, you know, COVID can take a lot from us, but it can't take Christmas from us. can't take Advent from us. Uh, so we're going to look at uh, Luke 24 uh, here in just a moment. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we um, come before your uh, word and with, uh, uh, with much hunger. Uh, Lord, we are hungry. Would you fill us? Uh, we have our mouths open wide uh, to feast upon you. Uh, do this even now. In Christ's name, amen. Um, when you look at something, what do you see? What are the categories uh, that you use to be able to interpret what an object actually is? Well, there's texture, there's shape, uh, there's size, there's proximity, and of course there's color. Color's a beautiful thing, isn't it? But how does color work? Well, color works because we identify color when we use our eyes and our brain uh, to, to translate light. And humans, we're unusual for how we do color. We have what's called trichromatic vision. In other words, we see three photopigments. Most other mammals only see two, which means that our color palettes as human beings are far more rich than mammals. Now, there are some beings that have more than three, like butterflies, so that they see more color than we do. We couldn't even imagine what their color palette is like. And most of us, most of us have a very similar color vision experience, unless you have colorblindness. I had a friend in college who was colorblind, and we would walk through campus, and especially when girls were with us, we would ask him, uh, what color is that? And uh, we just embarrassed the tar out of him, and he wrote us back on other things, um, but, he, he, but it was just really interesting because I'd never grown up with anybody who was colorblind. I didn't know anybody like that. And it was hard for me to kind of get used to the fact that his vision experience was very different than mine. But we all rely on our eyes to determine reality, don't we? We see things and then we form our beliefs about them. So let me ask you a question. What if our eyes don't comprehend the full gamut of reality? Kind of like my colorblind friend. What if there are things, really important things, that fall out of view or that skew our perception of what's real? See, this is our experience as sinners. We do have poor vision, not just with our physical eyes, but with the eyes of our hearts. We don't see things as they really are, and therefore we come up with foolish beliefs. And that's what we see in Luke 24. Luke 24, the passage I'm about ready to read, is only found in the Gospels in this one case. So there's two men who are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus after Jesus' crucifixion. So we'll read it starting with verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. It was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? 
And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he, was, he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished far from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and now and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. All right, so you got these two guys. You have Cleopas, and you have another person who's unspecified. There's no name. And they've been in Jerusalem. They had been there for the events of Jesus' arrest, for his trial, for his crucifixion. And now these people, who are his disciples, they're very, very sad, according to verse 17. And that word for sad is an interesting one. It kind of means sadness to the fifth power. You could say gloomy or solemn or sorrowful or depressed. And do you see why they were so sorrowful? It was because their hopes had been dashed. They were despairing. They had placed all their eggs in the basket of Jesus making all things new. Jesus was supposed to be the one who would return the fortunes to his people. That he would release them from the captivity to Rome. And so now that he was dead, it just didn't make any sense to them. It had been a traumatic weekend. And now they're just talking this all out between the two of them on this two-hour walk home, about seven miles. And while they're on this two-hour walk home and they're talking with one another, a third person comes along. And the, per the third person comes along and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they said, are you serious? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there during these days? You can hear the sarcasm. They're telling this third person, how out of touch are you? So Cleopas, 
he has mercy on this third person. He begins to fill them in on this, all the happenings of Jerusalem. You see that in verses 19 to 24. But as the reader, you know something that those two dudes don't. You know who that third person is. You know that it's Jesus. Why couldn't they see that it was Jesus? Well, look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. To put it real simple, the two dudes were blind. And I think this has a lot to say to those of us who would call ourselves disciples of Jesus. See, back in verse 9, the women who saw the empty tomb, they, were, they returned to the 11 disciples. And it says in verse 9, and all the rest. So when they find the disciples, it's not just 11 of them, there's a few more. And among those few more are these two guys, because verse 13 says, two of them. So what this means, that there's the inner ring of the 11 disciples, that's the 12 disciples who spent three the three years of Jesus' earthly ministry with him, minus Judas. And right outside that ring, you have Cleopas and his friends. They are about as inside as inside can get, and they don't recognize Jesus. Presumably, they've spent about as much time with him as anybody on the planet except for his family. So what does that say about me and you? What's the implication what says that you can spend a lot of time around Jesus and missing. You can be Christian for a long time and have no idea who Jesus is. Let me put it another way. Our proximity to Jesus does not determine our intimacy with Jesus. So you can be a Christian, you can come to church, you can be in a neighbor group, you can listen to Christian music, you can read Christian blogs, you can pray all while being quite distant from Jesus. But Jesus is kind, isn't he? Comes along these two guys, and he wants to correct their view. But he knows he's going to get their attention. He's going to rattle their cage. He's going to ruffle their feathers, and he does in verse 25 and 26. You see what he says to them. He calls them foolish ones. And he says they're slow of heart. Jesus doesn't coddle them and overly empathize with them. He doesn't say, I know it must be hard for you to lose your leader. How about I just give you a big hug? No, instead he rattles them a bit. He gets their attention because they don't get it. But what is it about Jesus that they don't get? You see it right there in the text. It's that Jesus would have to suffer and then enter glory. I don't know if you picked up on this, but as in verses 19 through 24 that I read just a minute ago, as he's talking about Jesus, they call him a prophet. I guarantee you they wouldn't have called him prophet just a few days earlier. What they have a really hard time with is that he had to suffer. See, they just don't get his humanity. It was too hard for them to swallow they couldn't conceive that Jesus would possibly rise from the dead only to just take a walk with two of his friends. If Jesus was going to rise from the dead, he was going to have a big show. See, during his earthly life, they had been floored by his divinity. It was his walking on water. It was his calming the sea. It was him 
healing, restoring the sight of the blind. It was healing disease. It was casting out demons. That got their attention. They had categories for these powerful displays. They had categories for these miracles, but they couldn't wrap their minds around his humanity. What they were expecting, if Jesus were to raise from the dead, is that he would come riding in on the clouds. See, I think we're in the same boat. I think it'll be evident, as I just say, a few of the things that the New Testament tells us about Jesus. Did you know that the New Testament says in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus is our brother? It's hard. Jesus is our brother. John 15 and other places. Jesus is our friend. Luke 18 that we looked at last week, that Jesus was inviting to children. In three places, it says that Jesus' heart throbbed with pity. One was when he saw a widow weeping over the death of her son. One was over seeing two blind men. And another, when he saw a leper suffering. His heart throbbed with pity. Brother, friend. Inviting to children. And then in Matthew 11, Jesus says that he's gentle and humble in heart. And now, he goes on the most normal of activities. He has a talk while walking with two of his friends who are sad. And I think Jesus shows up all the time in our weakness, in our frailty, in our sadness, just like he did for Cleopas and his friend. And we don't recognize him. Now, if he were to show up to us in power in our lives, if we got an unexpected promotion, we'd come home, we'd be saying, I got blessed. If you were a sports figure and you won the big game, you'd say, I got blessed. If your kids all of a sudden started acting perfect out of nowhere, you'd said, I just got blessed. We like a Jesus who's powerful because we want to align ourselves with powerful people and powerful organizations. The same is true for Cleopas and his buddy. They wanted a powerful Jesus to overthrow Rome. And if Jesus did that, then guess what it would mean for them? It'd mean they would be considered a success too. Their life would be easier, it'd be less painful, there'd be less suffering, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus died. And now these are just two dudes walking down the road who are doing something really normal. They're not in the temple. They're not healing the sick, they're not feeding the poor, they're not teaching on the kingdom of God. They're just walking and talking. And they're sad. And I'm convinced that that's what Jesus wants to do with me and you. That's what he wants to do with me and you during this Advent season. He wants to find you in your new normal. He wants to find you while you're educating your kids. He wants to find you when you're working from home. He wants to find you when you're looking for a job. He wants to find you when you're doing your click list. And he wants to open your eyes to who he is through his word. You see, that's what Jesus did for these two guys. 
He just opened the scriptures to them. He opened them in their sadness and he began to show them what they couldn't see. And what they couldn't see about Jesus, this was just true for them, is that Jesus was going to have to suffer before he were to rise in glory. But what is it that you might not see about Jesus? Well, it might be that you don't see Jesus as holy. You treat him like a cross between a pushover grandpa and a Santa Claus. You just don't realize that he's supposed to be revered. Maybe you don't see that Jesus is so active in your life. You think that the fact that he's right at the right hand of the Father, that he's being passive, that he's not involved with you. You don't see that he's praying for you, that he's defending you, that he's protecting you. Maybe what you don't see about Jesus is that Jesus actually gets angry. Maybe what you don't see about Jesus is that he gets sad. We could go on and on, but here's the mission of Jesus. Jesus' mission when he was on earth was to show us the fullness of his Father. Now, up to this point, once you get to Luke 24, the Jews, the people of God, they knew some things about God, and the things they knew about God were from these strings of characteristics, like we heard like we sung in Psalm 103, like we heard from Megan from Exodus chapter 34, there's lots of these places in the Old Testament where there's just these string of characteristics of God's character. You also know what God's like, not just from these strings, but also by his deeds. He parts the Red Sea, so you know he's powerful. You know he's gracious because he orders his prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute and stay committed to her even when she's not committed to him. You begin to piece together. This is what God's like. But you're always left wanting. You always want more. It's like you've got this 2D, this two-dimensional image of who God is, and you're wondering, just by reading the Old Testament, what would it look like for a human being to embody these characteristics? Ah, that's where you have Jesus. And in Jesus, you see God's kindness, you see his glory, you see his goodness, you see his grace, you see his love, you see his power, and you see it in a person. And so each week as we go through Advent, we're going to look at how Jesus embodies the full character of God. And I fully anticipate that he's going to fill in the gaps for you, just like he did for Cleopas and his friend. He's going to help you see the full color spectrum who God is through the person of Christ. But I think he's going to do more than just fill in the gaps for you and for me. I think he's going to do something in our hearts. So you look at those two guys in Luke 24 again. Jesus is on this seven-mile journey with them. He's talking to them. He's opening the scriptures with them as they're walking. And at the end, they invite Jesus to come to their house to eat with them. They want more from this guy. They still don't know who Jesus is. They're just intrigued by him. So Jesus comes to their house and he sits down with them. He sits at the table with them. And he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives them the bread. Takes, blesses, breaks, gives. Takes, blesses breaks, gives, those four verbs. 
And there are two other places where Jesus takes, blesses, and breaks the bread. One place is in the feeding of 5,000. And it's possible. This is such a big crowd. Cleopas and this guy were there. They remember that. Takes, blesses, breaks, gives. Maybe another place, maybe they weren't there, but maybe they heard about it. It was in the upper room. The institution of the Last Supper. Jesus says, takes, blesses, breaks, gives. So Cleopas and his friends are sitting there with Jesus, and Jesus uses those four verbs again, and the light bulb goes off. And they realize that this person who's been teaching them from the Scripture, they, they realize this person that they're eating this meal with, they realize it's Jesus. And as soon as they realize it, as soon as their jaws drop to the floor that the resurrected Jesus is the one sitting with them, Jesus vanishes. <laughs> Poof. He's gone. And once he's gone, it's, they say to one another, did not our hearts burn within us on the road when he spoke to us the scriptures. See, verse 16 says their eyes were blind. And now they see. They see that there was, that this was Jesus. They had to suffer before he would go into glory. Their vision had been corrected. And now they're experiencing delight and awe and joy. Several years ago, I watched a video, a little short clip on the internet for the first time, and I watched it again this afternoon just to make sure it was fresh. And the videos of the 66-year-old man who had been colorblind his whole life. And uh, it's his birthday party. He's sitting outside. He's wearing a Florida Gators hat, so don't hold it against him. Uh, and he gets this gift, and he is unwrapping this gift. He sees the package, and it says glasses for the colorblind. He says, well, I'm colorblind. You know, his family kind of laugh, chuckle. And he pulls them out of the box, and he puts them on, and they're on his face for about a half a second. And he takes them off, and he puts his head down, and he just weeps. First time he's ever had his full color palette. He does it again, weeps again. Does it a third time, weeps, weeps again. Because this is the first time he saw the greenness of the grass, the blueness of the sky. This is the first time he knew what color that these balloons actually were. And the second part of the video is him inside. He's got this HD TV. He's inside. He's got these big glass, big dark glasses on. And he's talking about what he sees on the TV like he's never watched TV before in his life. His vision had been corrected. And he's filled with more joy than maybe he'd ever had in his life. And that's what I hope happens to me and to you these next five weeks, is that our vision is corrected. And that leads us to deeper places of joy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do want joy unspeakable. And boy, do we need it. Lord, I pray that we would see you more clearly. You'd use your word in the next five weeks as we prepare for your coming. We pray these things in your name.